Recently, I had the great pleasure of participating on a panel at the American Studies Association uh, with some really tremendous scholars of sport and college sport. Um, and unfortunately, that panel was payfall, paywalled. Um, academic paywalls are rather excruciating to me, um, given that, for instance, participation in a conference often means that you are literally paying in order to work for the benefit of the conference. Um, you do the labor of producing, let's say, a talk, and then you also get to pay in order to participate in the conference. Um, given that frustration, um, I decided that I would actually like to share um, some of the comments that I, um, that I delivered in, in that panel. Um, and so that's what I'm going to do here. The panel was a discussion about the incredible resistance we have seen um, fomenting in college sport, especially in the last year and a half. Um, and so what I'm going to do here is I'm going to kind of basically take you through what my introductory remarks were, um, in that panel. My remarks were designed to try to situate the resistance we've seen within the context of the constraints that college athletes face. And that's an issue, obviously, that we're talking about all the time on this podcast. Um, and um, this is sort of my attempt to keep kind of pushing that analysis forward to sketch out really what the constraints are in the context of college sport. In other words, I think it's necessary to delve into a subject that implicitly and at times explicitly undergirds most public debate over exploitation in college sport, the question of consent. Apologists for the college sports system tell us that players signed up for it, that players want to play. Indeed, a sport historian Harvey Abrams recently told me on Twitter, these students voluntarily participate with their own free will and intense enthusiasm knowing the risks which they chose and accept. They do not labor, but they willingly participate in a team sport and have the freedom to leave whenever they desire, end quote. Now, there is, of course, truth to this statement in its most superficial sense. I mean, there's no literal gun to the head, as it were. But any serious student of social structure, or indeed viewer of Squid Game, will also understand that agency, consent, always operates within the context of limits, the point at which choice is foreclosed by coercion. And that's the word I really want to begin with, coercion. For the resistance of campus athletic workers must always be understood within the context of the coercive dynamics they confront. We can only fully appreciate what college athletes have accomplished by taking stock of the forces arrayed against them. If you'll allow me to start from the premise that college sport, particularly but not exclusively Power Five men's football and basketball, are sites of extreme exploitation, it becomes rather pertinent then to consider what conditions make that exploitation, the extraction of value from unpaid college students, possible in the first place. That is, what makes this labor force available and susceptible for exploitation? Why do players quote-unquote, sign up for college sport? Now, there are, of course, myriad answers to this question. 
But I want to highlight one key socioeconomic factor and one key cultural factor that I think fundamentally undermine any claim that the exploitation that occurs in college sport can be understood as consensual. Let me call the first of these, borrowing from the ethicist Jill Fisher, structural coercion. By structural coercion, I mean a system of racial capitalism in the United States that has systematically extracted and transferred wealth from largely, but not exclusively, racialized people. This ongoing history has produced sufficient privation to frame access to otherwise inaccessible and profoundly indebting PWI institutions that comes from college sport as a relatively desirable option even if it is an option that is nevertheless profoundly inequitable in the way that it dispenses the value produced. As one college football player put it, I quote now, even though I know that there's a chance that I could receive a concussion, I feel as though it is a part of the game and it's a possibility, but it won't deter me from the game. I know that when you play this sport, this is what you're signing up for. Yes, there are risks but the opportunity to take care of myself and the people around me is nothing compared to taking a couple of shots. The risks are huge now with the introduction of studies that link CTE and concussions, but for myself and others, I wouldn't be where I am in life right now without sports, end quote. In a genuinely equitable society with authentic universal access to higher education, Perhaps we might call participation in an associated system of inter-university sport consensual. But that is not the society we have, and those are not the conditions under which college sport is played in the United States today. There is also what I want to call an ideological dimension to the decision campus athletic workers make to participate in college sport. I use ideological here to refer to the cultural milieu in a society that fetishizes sport, particularly football, above other cultural forms. The immersion of children in such a culture is bound to produce subjects invested in athletic success. But to what extent is that investment in elite sport, in performance, in the maximization of potential? To what extent is that a choice? And to what extent is that an imperative conditioned by culture and structure? The spectacles of the Super Bowl, of Saturday afternoons and Friday night lights, of March Madness, these have an interpolatory effect on those who witness them. Think of Arthur Agee in Hoop Dreams, with an Isaiah Thomas poster on his wall, Isaiah Thomas on his television, and off he heads to Isaiah Thomas's high school, where the legacy of the star seems to burnish every wall. Would it have been any wonder if, given the opportunity, he would, in addition, have found his way to college at Indiana? The line between consent and conditioning is perhaps blurrier than we might like it to be. The influence of structural and ideological coercion on consent are not only philosophical questions, for they are also, in a very real sense, the barriers to resistance once players arrive on campus. If college sport is structurally positioned as a rare lever of opportunity, if it has been established as a profoundly meaningful life goal, jeopardizing that opportunity and meaning in order to engage in protest, no matter how warranted, is a tremendous risk. And indeed, that risk is compounded by what sociologist Aaron Hatton has called status coercion. 
Status coercion is the form of coercion that allows colleges to maximize exploitation by undermining campus athletic workers' avenues for resistance. The fact that a coach wields absolute authority over players in terms of the opportunity they are afforded, their scholarships, their playing time, necessary, by the way, if they will ever recoup compensation from their degree, means that they have the material basis, coaches do, through which to chill the speech and action of campus athletic workers, as the general counsel of the NLRB put it in her recent memo. Coaches have the power to control the lives of their unpaid workers in nearly every respect, monitoring what they eat, how they spend their time, whether or not they attend class, what they say on social media, and on and on. Or, as Urban Meyer was recently fake-quoted as saying in The Onion while describing what makes coaching in the NFL so difficult compared to college, quote, lots of people have their own ideas that I can't just override by throwing them off the team or threatening to take away a scholarship. Structural coercion, ideological coercion, status coercion. These factors, in combination, are a cudgel wielded by coaches and athletic departments to discipline, regulate, and exploit campus athletic workers. But we are seeing resistance nevertheless is a testament to the diminished hegemony of universities and the NCAA, to the degree of injustice, harm, and exploitation in college sport, and above all, to the courage and conviction of the worker students we are privileged to learn with in our classes. The extent to which this resistance will persist in the wake of NIL liberalization is an open question. But to me, it is also a matter of intense urgency. As my students and I agreed in discussing this over recent weeks, while NIL has returned to college athletes a basic right they were previously denied, it in no way meaningfully addresses a single axis of coercion constraining campus athletic workers, nor the plantation dynamics of the institution of college sport. Only further organizing and resistance can accomplish that. So, um, you know, as everyone can see, uh, my position obviously is that uh, college sport is a fundamentally coercive environment. And that means that any resistance we see in the context of college sport uh, is, you know, incredibly brave. It's admirable. It's difficult. Um, And so I guess to to sort of turn this question to you, because I'm really curious what you both sort of think of this larger question, which is the larger question being, I think, what do we make of this moment of athlete resistance, the athlete resistance we've seen in the past 18 months or so, right? And we're thinking here of we are united in the Pac-12, college athlete unity originating in the Big Ten, not NCAA property, Sedona prints on the awful conditions of the women's basketball tournament, the formation of the United College Athletes Association, led by Kaya McCullough and others, Texas football players pushing back against the eyes of Texas, Kylan Hill at Mississippi State protesting the state flag, right? On and on. We have seen a tremendous amount of resistance, but then balancing that out at the same time, we have the you know, persistence of these incredibly coercive conditions, whether or not we have this NIL liberalization. And I think we could even perhaps suggest that 
NIL liberalization introduces its own new set of coercive conditions. Um, I'm thinking we're talking gig work. We're talking about the fact that actually it gives the NCAA and the universities cover around the question of exploitation. Uh, Frankly, it also introduces the influence of corporations that don't necessarily have the best interests of athletes at heart. It injects barstool into this conversation, right? So we have all of these ways in which um, coercion is still floating around in college sport. I think what I'm trying to ask you both is, is this a moment where you anticipate uh, a radical overhaul because of athlete resistance, or um, do you have significant concerns that we're going to have a kind of re-entrenchment of the conditions that already exist? I, I think that that's a, it's a really important question. Um, in, in last week's episode, we had Max Alvarez on talking about how this moment, it, it's a seemingly similar moment happening outside of sport as well. Um, due to pandemic conditions uh, and a variety of, of different conditions, you're seeing labor movements kind of all around us right now. And I don't think these two things are disconnected, first off. I don't think like the labor mobilization in sport is disconnected from the broader labor movement that we're seeing play out all around us where there's mass resigning. There are people looking for better opportunities and better working conditions. And we're recording this in the midst of striketober. I don't think these two things are disconnected for a variety of reasons. And I, I think... Perhaps one of the um, antecedents of the broader labor movement is actually seeing the the mobilization in sport, because as we know, these are some of the most prominent unionized people in the world. They're out there and seeing when when there's a strike in the NBA, people see that, and I think that those two things are kind of mirroring one another. So to answer your question um, about where we sort of see the the reform or revolutionary question, I think, sadly, there's always going to be that external pressure from advanced capitalism that tries to systematically bulldoze labor movements. So I don't think there's a revolutionary moment, for instance. I don't think there is something on the horizon where we are going to see a moment where the entire sport system kind of changes, fundamentally changes. But what I think is that this labor movement has so much momentum and has very clearly demonstrated so much momentum that it's going to be very, very difficult for those capitalist conditions to prevent an inevitable slower change, if you will. I, I, the sort of the discourse around like, oh, there's going to be a, a switch flipped and suddenly there's not going to be exploitation in, uh, in college sport and in sport in general. I think that's a misnomer. I, I think that there's, that's not going to happen uh, where one day it's just going to be fundamentally different, but the importance of labor solidarity and mobilization across the entire workforce is so evident, so clear, and can support an ongoing 
battle against these capitalist forces that are really, really big. I know that doesn't really answer the question, but I, I, th I think that what we're seeing today highlights the need for not only continued athlete mobilization, but solidarity across the labor force. Solidarity beyond athletes, beyond campus athletic workers, and beyond um, just looking at sport as um, part of the labor movement, but solidarity between factions of this labor movement. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm inclined to agree, and maybe I'm just being really pessimistic about this, but I guess I don't, I don't think we have enough evidence to kind of say that there will be really substantial. And if, I mean, of course it wouldn't happen overnight, but I don't think we have enough evidence to, to, to see, to say that there will be like a revolutionary movement within college sports or within sports in general. I feel like we have so many in like, yes, last year there were a lot of developments that were really crucial and really important, but it seems like most of them have lost steam and I think NIL, which you mentioned with both, both of you mentioned, I think that's been used as like a little carrot to give athletes to say, well, at least we can make some money. And too many people are accepting of that. And, and not only just in the, you know, athletes, obviously coaches buy into this, right? Because it supports the reason for their salaries, right? They, their salaries are not at all in jeopardy. Um, but we even have fucking academics who are getting a piece of the pie, right? Who are contributing to it as well. There are very, very, very few people who are actually being critical of NIL. And I think that shows that most people have accepted it. Most people are excited about it. They're not willing to challenge the fact that, as you said, it just kicks the can down the road. It just makes athletes have to do even more work to pick up the scraps of whatever terrible companies. Some of them are okay, but yeah, we have bar school still, right? So we have the scraps that companies are willing to give to them. You know, athletes are having to do more work to figure out how the hell they can actually get paid. And, you know, the research that athletes may or may not do into the companies that they're doing business with. I mean, that's just more work that's on their plates and that they, we already know they don't have time. We already know that they are overburdened with classes, with, you know, the athletic labor they have to produce of having to deal with like being harassed by fans and social media, um, not to mention the, the pressure to just kind of put on a happy face and kind of accept it and be okay with it. And, you know, we've seen so many, we have so much evidence of just, um, of, you know, of abuse, racial abuse, physical, sexual, emotional, whatever, regardless of whether it's at the college level, at the professional level, at the international level. And like the, for me, the needle has not moved enough to sort of show convincingly that there's going to be any kind of revolutionary movement, at least anytime soon. I mean, and you know, UF is personal to me because I was there for a decade, but right. We had all this evidence of like an asshole abusive coach you know, being passed along and like these female athletes just struggling against racism, against, you know, all sorts of things. And, you know, that was a blip, right? That story is over with. People are done with it. And there was no open solidarity from what I saw of any other UF athletes and other sports, right? People knew this was going on. Enough people turned a blind eye to it. And then even when the news broke, and there were people supporting them. I didn't see UF athletes making a statement publicly in any other sport. They're not willing to support each other. Go back to what Derek said, right? We don't have solidarity, public solidarity across sports, even within the same friggin' school. 
Um, so I, again, maybe I'm just really pessimistic, but I feel like we're just seeing patterns over and over and over again. They're all using the same playbook. And by they, I mean NCAA, university athletic administrators, um, higher ed administrators, um, coaches. They're all using the same playbook over and over and over again. They're all giving each other secrets. They're all giving each other strategies and tactics. Um, they're all using very similar terminology and, um, so like none of this is really a mystery at all at this point, but it's just, I'm not seeing, we're not, I just don't think we're seeing enough, uh, which is, which is really sad. Yeah. I, I got a couple points to follow up with there. One of them is, you know, just speaking to your point at kind of about consolidation almost, you know, it's noteworthy that just the other day, uh, the men's basketball coach at West Virginia, uh, Bob Huggins was talking about how the major colleges should be splitting off, uh, the, the power, essentially the power five colleges should be splitting off in basketball to host their own tournament, um, trying to wrest power away from the NCAA. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, what we have to understand is like, this is a, power struggle we're seeing between the NCAA and universities, that doesn't benefit athletes, right? The universities are simply yeah. trying to, to, to keep their grasp on the revenue. Um, mm-hmm. And that tells you everything you need to know about how much they're going to be willing to share that revenue with the athletes at those yeah. schools, right? If they're fighting with their own kind of allies in this. The other mm-hmm. thing I want to say, um, and you, you made me think about this, Johanna, and also Derek has made me think about this in the past. I don't think anyone else is really talking about the fact that one of the very unhappy byproducts of NIL liberalization uh, may very well be, of course, the the gig work component, like the gig work Mm -hmm. component being like people then have to grind so hard, they have to hustle so hard to make a buck, essentially, right? That is work that they are doing on the side of their full-time athletic jobs, on the side of their Mm -hmm. full-time student work, right? So, I mean, inherently that is a massive additional burden to place upon these athletes. And that's problematic Mm -hmm. in its own right. But let's go beyond that. What is the single biggest barrier to labor organizing anywhere, but in the United States specifically, Mm -hmm. it is the workload that people have to bear Mm -hmm. the domestic work of their own lives and the work that they have to do in the workplace, which leaves no energy, effort, enthusiasm for workplace organizing, right? We have unions that can't even afford to have staff members to work on behalf of the union. So people have to do the own work, the work of the union for themselves. And that's just, it's too great a burden in most cases. So what is NIL gig work going to do? It's going to take the time that may have been invested in athlete organizing and it's going to give it to hustling for Applebee's, right? Hustling for the local car wash, hustling for fucking bar stool, right? I mean, instead of organizing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like my, my, since we're talking about gig work, my issue has always been obviously all, I, I agree with everything you're saying. Like this just adds to the workload. Where's the space to do anything, whether it be social life, whether it be um, education, whether it be work, whatever. But also like the, the broader message that this sends to all of us, that literally everyone else can pay campus athletic workers, but universities but the actual employer that's sending a, a huge message we're allowing and accepting and people are celebrating the fact that universities are now being subsidized in another way by private enterprise and all of these things paint that same picture where it becomes more and more challenging to carve out space for labor mobilization that you're alluding to nathan 
all of these things make put up barriers and and challenges for athletes who want to work to mobilize and and consolidate their 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 work and like we had Kaya McCullough on the show and it sounds like Kaya like has been doing 16 full-time jobs for the mm-hmm. past mm-hmm. several years and where is the space she's brilliant she's mm-hmm. absolutely brilliant in everything she's doing but can we expect that same level of commitment from most folks like mm-hmm. who have to fill their time with all of these other things and i think you're you're really pointing to that yeah and i just want to clarify like i my 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 response is very negative and it focuses on athletes mm. but i i i don't mean to blame athletes cuz you're, you're absolutely right and i think that's the issue right is sort of capitalism just grinds people down so that they don't have the time and the space and the energy to fight back right that is literally the yeah. entire point um and and i think i think Kai McCullough is a great example and she talked us in that ep- through in that episode how difficult it is to to speak to athletes and also to kind of you know for them to have time to do it but also again forming the groups of solidarity seems to be really difficult because even like teams are siloed away from each other right and so there it, it isn't as if you know there are spaces for them to kind of come together and talk um and I just, and, you know, even, and I know we're talking about college sport, but, you know, like I, you know, it's, it's, it's sport and capitalist societies in general. And I even, I mean, it even goes down to like the way that it is organized in the U.S. with the government having such a hands-off approach. I mean, one headline that I saw yesterday that I didn't have, a, I didn't have a chance to really dive into was that um, there is a, oh shoot, I had it pulled up. Uh, Representative Deborah Ross, who's a congressman from North Carolina, um, one is is leading a group of forty one members of the House of Representatives and writing an open an open letter to the um, NWSL to ask to ask them not to demand but to ask them to investigate abuse and harassment. And it's you know this is while we have these like decades long harassment cases being investigated. Um, into USA Gymnastics, right? We have these things going on in so many sports and our way is to sort of deal with them individually, right? It's not to say we need a, a national, you know, ministry of sport, which is something that Tammy Gaw has been asking for for a really long time, which other countries have, which would be able to have this sort of oversight over sports as a whole, not just, you know, U.S. Olympic Committee sports, not just NCAA, not just club sports, but like sports as a whole. And I don't mean to say that's going to solve all of our problems because it won't, and it and it doesn't doesn't solve has never solved any you know all issues within a communist or socialist regime. And so I'm not saying that, but in terms of you know we don't have any kind of oversight over sports as a whole, and I think that's you know further individualizes these issues, and that's again what capitalism does, right? It, it individualizes these issues so that athletes and victimized people have to struggle through them on their own, and it really disincentivizes any kind of solidarity, any kind of group or collective action, and I think that's what we're seeing in sports. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Like the oversight question is is right on the money because even if we're thinking about something that it seems like an incredibly pos- uh, positive development, like the NLRB memo, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. that came out recently. So bringing back to like the college sport question specifically, you have this document that really seems to be laying out and addressing 
some of the most fundamental forms of coercion. It's addressing status coercion without naming it head on. It's literally using the language of student athlete and saying that it's chilling organizing. Um, you know, this is precisely what we need. But here's the catch, though. The NLRB is a very limited form of oversight. What does yeah. the NLRB need? They need athletes to literally do the work of organizing and then mm -hmm. bring forward violations when they happen because they don't actually have the ability to conduct investigations of their own. Yeah. They don't have the resources. Yeah. They're not empowered to do so. So it essentially does, not by any fault of their own. Like the memo is a wonderful document. And like the NLRB in this case is doing exactly what we would hope in the best possible case scenario the NLRB would doing, be doing. But the NLRB cannot itself be the answer to this. And that brings right. us back to, I think, what you're saying. We have legislation that's being brought forward in Congress, right? The College mm -hmm. Athlete Right to Organize Act. That's the kind of um, intervention I think that's needed. An act that specifically just fundamentally and directly changes the terms of employment, right? From above, so that there's no, like you take the pressure off the athletes in that case. They say, right. in, instead of saying like, well, you can try under very arduous conditions to form a bargaining unit, even though like you don't really have one. And if they try to stop you from having a bargaining unit, then like you can bring this violation forward and hopefully that'll work out. Meanwhile, all of these layers of coercion still exist, right? Yeah. Um, and so like you're really swimming upstream or you can have legislation that says, no, no, you are in a bargaining unit now. You are in a bargaining mm -hmm. unit now, right? You have these rights right now. Um, and so I think we need like positive steps like that. that that's where this kind of this movement has to head um, if we want to see really profound change. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like the the whole neoliberal project is always to individualize every problem, as if as mm -hmm. it, as if it's up to individual agency to get yourself out of that, or it's up to individual agency to determine what your life is going to be about. But like, we know, and sorry, this is the I guess the sociological, uh, the soci the sociologist in me talking that like in order to create the conditions for the possibility of agency, you have to have some form of structure there. You have to some have some form of institutional um, uh, context and ability to do that. The structure informs agency. And what we're seeing conversely here with labor mobilization that has gone on over the past decade or so, uh, and I'm not saying it's only gone on over the past decade or so, but what we're seeing is how agency can actually influence structure as well. Let's remember that when Northwestern and Kane Coulter went to the NLRB, they were denied in 2015, I believe, or 2016. Today, in 2021, the NLRB is suggesting it publicly that the term student athlete is used to bulldoze labor mobilization. That, those two things are not disconnected. The fact that there's been this, this, this move, this labor mobilization amongst athletes and notably uh, high profile movements, that is having a lasting impact on the structure. But we need structural change and athletes need structural change in order to prepare the conditions for further mobilization. Yeah, and I just want to add to that, Derek, like the, the general counsel explicitly says that in the memo. Why am I yeah. why am I delivering this memo right now? I'm delivering it because conditions have changed, right? Mm -hmm. Conditions have changed. We have seen mobilization by athletes and that has pushed us to act in this case. So I think yeah. you're exactly right. 
Yeah. And I just kind of, I mean, this is just something I've been thinking about a lot, uh, when we're, when we, when we have these incidents where athletes actually do feel comfortable kind of collect working collectively or individually coming forward with any kind of, um, evidence of, of harassment or abuse or coercion or whatever, like our society, and I don't think this is just the U.S., but, you know, I know the U.S. the best, you know, our society, we uh, we demand so much of people, right? If we're kind of talking about the individualization of, of labor, um, this also comes down to like the politics of pain in terms of we demand so much of victimized and oppressed people to detail every single little thing and to come forward with their gut-wrenching trauma and share it with us and re-traumatize themselves. And I know this is kind of like old news and I and I and I will bring this back to college sports, but I just keep thinking about these you uh the USA gymnasts, right? That they continually have to keep re-traumatizing themselves and essentially are it, we require them to trot out their their trauma and their abuse for us to convince the higher ups that their case should never have been buried by the FBI, right? That they should have restitution, right? And we demand this so much. We see this in the discussions of whether we should give reparations to descendants of enslaved, uh, to descendants of enslaved people, right? We kind of see this all across the board and, you know, people are just continually like denying that athletes are suffering, whether it's college sports, the NCAA or kind of Olympic athletes or sort of even like club athletes that, that, that face any kind of, kind of oppression, right? We demand so much evidence on their behalf. And, you know, I even think about our piece, our pieces last year that really landed really well. And we were bringing, you know, evidence from athletes testifying to their experiences of being college athletes during COVID. I mean, I'm glad we came. I'm so glad we did that piece. I'm glad that we, we were able to kind of bring those athletes voices and experiences forward, but it's like people were not willing to imagine Mm -hmm. what the conditions were like for college athletes during that time, right? They needed that evidence. And like, yes, as scholars, we prioritize, prioritize evidence and that's what we use to make our points but in terms of changing public opinion right the demand is so high and I just I hate that we have to have that that I hate that we require that of athletes in order to move the needle at all right the whole the fact that the NLRB came forward that statement saying that there have been developments developments have been going on for a long time and yes like agency absolutely should push the needle but what is the burden of proof there and i just i find that very very problematic that the the extent of the burden of proof that we require that we sort of demand of athletes is just absolutely crushing and it's more labor than i think um way more labor than athletes should need to be doing yeah johanna i think you're you're so right there and especially saying that this is not unique to the United States, and an, exa- an obvious example uh, in the Canadian context, oh, it's it's not solely Canadian, but hockey is typically uh, identified as a sort of national sport in Canada, and hockey is dealt with this, and it is dealing with this in very real and tangible ways in terms of the Chicago NHL team scandal that has taken place, where. These teams, this this uh, Chicago NHL franchise has systematically covered up abuse, like very clearly covered up abuse. And yet all of the people, except for the one person, the, the one um, most notable perpetrator, but everyone surrounding that that enabled that person to cause real harm and trauma, 
almost everyone around that person is still in a job. The GM of the Chicago team, Stan Bowman, is still in that job. Mark Bergevin is still the general manager of the Montreal Canadiens, and he drafted someone this past year. He drafted someone who had been arrested um, for committing an act of sexual violence. And it doesn't stop there. Joel Quenville is still the coach of the Florida, uh, the Florida Panthers. There, there are all these people who enabled and who we know mm -hmm. and who we now know due to brilliant re reporting from uh, Rick Westhead, all these people around it. And yet we don't care. We don't, we're not pushing on the, on these people to, to be held accountable. Why? Well, I think you're you're right on there. We expect so much from the victims to come out. Why would the victims why would more victims come out when they see these people in powerful positions? Stan Bowman is going to choose the Canadian Olympic hockey team. Why would anyone come out against that person if they wanted to play for that team? And and I think that you're completely right that this is not unique to Canada and that is so much labor that we expect folks to take on and so much trauma and harm that we expect victims and survivors to take on just so that we don't rock the boat like just so we don't have to like change the system yeah and i mean even to i mean akira mccormick who was a guest on us mm, yep, uh what yep. the december of last year right and 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 when you know she detailed what what went on within canada soccer and sort of what she witnessed and in light of i mean i guess to the i guess to the credit of the nwsl they at least once this news broke they at least seem to start handling some of it very quickly, whereas Kira and her colleagues are still calling for more accountability against Bob Barada and the individuals who are still involved in Canada soccer. Um, and it certainly is not limited to the U.S. And, you know, I, you all know I study Hungary, and there's like a very famous case of um, this guy who was the um, head of the Hungarian Swimming Association literally up until three years ago, and he had... Um, gang raped somebody in the 60s, right? And he um, had a very lenient sentence and then was welcomed right back in the community, right? So I don't mean to say this is a specific problem to capitalism or to the U.S. We have it everywhere, but absolutely in terms of the U.S. and kind of, and, and at least in capitalist studies, we individualize these problems mm -hmm. and the burden of proof is so great. Um, and we just beat athletes down so much. I mean, at, like literally just like physically beating them at, by virtue of being athletes. And then there's the emotional and all the other stuff that's thrown in. And just the burden of proof is so high, which is what makes it so damn difficult for college athletes to find any kind of space or energy or anything in their daily lives to kind of address the conditions of their labor when they are literally just trying to survive every single day and get the damn degree and win games and kind of move on mm -hmm. with their lives. And just to, to sort of circle back to where we started, like this, why, this is why for me, we have to think of all these different axes of coercion in this yeah. sense, um, yeah. all of the different ways in which um, the kind of liberation of the athlete as, as a worker and as a person who genuinely kind of has the freedom to express themselves through sport mm -hmm. in a healthy and positive way. 
we have to think about the fact that there's no one solution, but actually like we need to have solutions that address each of these axes at the same right. time. Structural coercion, right, is a factor that's sort of outside of sport. Yeah. It's the fact that we have like a society born of slavery, born of colonialism, that has mm -hmm. um, transferred and built wealth based on the vicious exploitation and extraction from racialized people, right, and afforded that power mm -hmm. to largely the white population in this country. Um, and we see the lingering effects in terms of what opportunities are available to people as a consequence of that. If we mm -hmm. want to address that, there's no tweak to the sports system that's going to solve that. Right. Like the, so, right. the so, quote unquote solutions involve things like reparations, like actual yeah. access to higher education. That's not a sport issue. It's like literally school needs to be free. Mm -hmm. People need to get a stipend to go to school, right? right? Like we need to have universal health care so that the consequences of participation in sport aren't borne by the individual via insurance costs, right? Like mm -hmm. these are all actual solutions that will profoundly affect the landscape of sport and the coercive conditions in sport. We need to think about the status coercion, the fact that the power that is afforded, this is what you've all been talking about, the power that's afforded to these coaching figures, to these administrators, yeah. et cetera, right? Like we have to have, I mean, that's where I think that the unionization piece really comes in because yeah. that's where you wrench power back. You actually build via solidarity and via bargaining rights, like the workers can leverage their own power through the ability to withdraw their labor and take things for themselves, right? And mm -hmm. then there's the ideological component to it. We can't forget mm -hmm. the fact, right, that hand in hand with neoliberal ideology is this ideology of like the of sport being this avenue to the American dream, essentially, yeah. right? And so the people and you invest, must be docile along the way. Exactly, you have to invest everything in this process of sacrificing for this system. That's what earns you the payoff in the end, right? Like we see everything that's happening in the context of minor league baseball right now, which is a perfect example of that, as Dirk Hayhurst has talked about on our show, right? This idea that like you grit and bear it while you're going through the process of the viciously exploitative minor league system because hopefully one day you're going to get that payoff. And so the system is ultimately upheld by its very own participants, right? Because when you learn something, when you're three, four, five, six, seven years old, you can't shake that later, right? I mean, like, what do I do mm -hmm. all the time? I ask for like the, essentially the abolition of sport as we know it. But when I play sports, I embody mm -hmm. all the things, that I reject. Yeah. I want to say in my, in the moment, I would probably play through a concussion just like my students do. Right. Because it's that deeply ingrained. You can't just flip that switch. So that's where the representational access comes in, right? Like we have to actually talk about sport differently. We have to represent sport differently. Um, so that the kids who start learning the game at five and six are learning a different kind of sport than we have right now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.